0: If you'll notice, there's this cavernous hole right here in the middle. It's because we've asked the students to sit with their families and asked the kids to sit with their families because we're going to be doing something a little bit later on that's going to necessitate families being together. And so uh, thankful that you're doing that. If you don't know where your family is somewhere else in this room right now, go ahead and text to find out where they are because at some point I'm going to ask you to go sit with them in a little bit. So just be forewarned. But in order to get to that moment, I need to talk to you about the theme of today. The theme of today is debt. And, and this is not like a financial peace, get out of debt. Uh, this is not, that's not what this Sunday is about. Remember, we're in, the, we're in the book of Exodus, going through the book of Exodus, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So it's, it's, not, it's not financial debt that I'm referring to, but financial debt helps you understand the kind of debt that we're going to deal with today. So I'm not always certain that people understand how debt works. Uh, just as I look at people's usage of credit cards and stuff like that, I, I, don't, I don't know if we always understand it well. So the way debt works is you purchase something with someone else's money and then you pay them back for that money, whether it's an institution, a bank, a credit card company or whatever. So you you buy something with someone else's money and then you're in debt to them for that amount of money. That's, That's how debt works. It's someone else's finances that you're spending and then you incur a debt. Now, the only way for debt to be fair is for it to be equal to the amount that was paid. So a debt should always follow in size with the amount paid for it to be just. So one of the worst kinds of debt out there is like a payday loan. If you know anything about these payday loans, they're, they're just financial slavery. So what happens is somebody goes to a payday loan place, borrows $5,000, and within a few months they owe $50,000 because the interest rates are out of, out of control and exorbitant, and people get stuck in poverty trying to pay back these debts. It's not just. This is why God, in the Old Testament, as he talks to the nation of Israel, he says, among yourselves, lend without interest. He's trying to set up a just system of debt, amount that's paid. The debt should follow in suit, in size, with the amount that's paid. That's how debt is supposed to be fair. Now, I, I believe that, that idea is important because this idea of owing somebody something goes way beyond money. We owe people for lots of things. In fact, there's a phrase we use a lot in, in, in just ordinary interactions, hey, bud, I owe you one. And what we mean by that typically isn't financial. It's like you did something for me. I should do something for you. In fact, I used it this past Sunday night. My, my wife and I, uh, we almost lost our marriage on Sunday night because uh, we were trying to put together a basketball goal. Uh, so I had, uh, we, we had laid, I had laid down the concrete base of it. It was perfectly straight. It cured for three days. I'll water and make sure I'm doing a good job getting the base set. Now it came time to put together the rest of the goal. And then you put the goal up on top. And it says to do it with three people, but I don't need three people. I got my wife and I will do it. So we go out there and I'm, I'm up on a ladder, you know, with the big part of it. And she's got the lower part and she almost killed me like four times. So I'm, I'm lifting up and, and she, she lifts the base, but it's top heavy. So the moment she does that, like I almost fly off the ladder. And, and I, babe, babe, stop it, stop it. No, no, you just kind of hold it in place. So then I lift, but then she, she kind of lets go of it and it swings out the other way and I almost fall off the ladder the other way. And now I'm, I'm getting frustrated. Babe, we can do this, we can do this. Just do your part. I'm being such a bungholio and, and I'm treating my wife over here. And finally she says, Jason, call our neighbor and ask for help. Now, <laughs> I'm a man, all right, we, I don't, baby, we can do this. And here's my, like, baby, if you just do your job, this is so bad. And we're, so we're going after her for a while, and she's got that fire in her eyes. I've been married to her long enough. I know when I'm hitting that limit, she goes, you better call the neighbor. I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> so, doo, 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 doo. hey, Chris, who lives across the street, would, would you come over here and help me out? We, I, I need some help putting up a basketball goal. He's like, sure, man. So he came over, and within two minutes, he was on one side, I was on the other. We got the thing in place, screwed in, perfect. Two minutes. That's all it took. Saved our marriage. Saved the church. Did, he did all this great work in two minutes because he came over. Yeah, he deserves an applause. <laughs> I promise you. That's, uh, I'll make sure he watches this video. But here's what's so interesting about it. The, the, as he was leaving after helping us, I said, hey, buddy, I owe you one. And what I mean by that is you, you served me. You gave me some time. You helped me accomplish this. I owe you something in, in like fashion or size. So like hey, bro, you need help moving like a cabinet or something, you, you call me, I'm, I'm your man. But what I don't mean is I'm going to be a slave to you for the rest of your life because you helped me put up a basketball goal. If he goes, oh, you owe me, all right, well, I want you to mow my lawn for the next year. I'm going to slap him in the face because it's, it's not like size, right? A debt always has to do, it should always equal the size of the price that was paid or the sacrifice that was made for it to be just. You help me for a couple minutes, I'll help you for a couple minutes. That's, that's kind of how this thing works. This is how debt should be in any form or fashion, whether it's financial or what you owe a person for service. The the smaller the sacrifice made, the smaller the debt that's owed. The greater the sacrifice that's made, the greater the debt that is owed. Now, let me tell you why that matters. When you come to spiritual entities and we're relating to God, until we understand the concept of a life debt, we won't know how to rightly relate to our God. We have to know how much we owe him, In order to know how to relate to him. Y'all know what a life debt is, right? If you know what a Wookiee is, you know what a life debt is. A Star Wars, you know, like this idea, somebody saves someone else's life, and because they risk their life, super high amount paid, to save somebody else's life, that other person has to repay that debt, either by saving that person's life or by living the rest of their days in gratitude and service to that person who saved their life. That's that's the life debt. That that's not a concept brought about by George Lucas. That's a concept brought about by Almighty God. This idea that when somebody pays a high price for you, you you have a debt that you have to repay with your life to them. This is the very lesson God wants to give the Israelites before he sends them off to be a brand new people. It's going to be found in Exodus 13. So open your Bibles so we can learn about this concept of the life debt we owe our God. Now, for those of you who are joining us, maybe tuning in for the first time or here for the first time, we are going to the book of Exodus chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we are almost at the finish of of this section of the book of Exodus. We're going to end in a couple of weeks as we we go through the Red Sea with the nation of Israel, that famous moment, the second most known part, uh, story of the whole Bible. Resurrection is number one. Crossing of the Red Sea is number two. You got Prince of Egypt tells you all about it. We all know about this crossing of the Red Sea. We're almost there, two weeks away. We've been for months now journeying through. We've been recently going through the 10 plagues and we saw the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. Finally, Pharaoh says to the Israelites, get out of here, you go. All the Egyptians go, you guys just get out of here, go. And so they're able to get the gold and the silver and the clothing from the Egyptians. They plunder them. And right before they're about to leave, God says, one one last quick lesson I have for you. I I wanna teach you about what you owe me. He wants them to know it. So they know how to relate to God. And that's what chapter 13 is all about. Read just the first couple of verses. Listen to what it says. It says, the Lord, that's the name Yahweh. "and, And Yahweh said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. He's trying to set up right now the debt that is owed. You owe me all of your firstborn. Now he doesn't explain why quite yet. And in fact, it actually, it actually zigs off to the left. So you have these first two verses that talk about the consecration of the firstborn. And then in verse 3, it completely leaves the consecration of the firstborn and talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So if you were to read verses 3 through 10, it would be all about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then in verse 11, it goes right back to the consecration of the firstborn in verses 11 through 16. And it's almost like Moses is getting a little ADHD right here. Like he's consecrates the firstborn, then he's unleavened bread, then he's back to the firstborn, and, and he's all over the place. And you don't know why, but there is a reason why. What Moses is doing is he's trying to merge together the consecration of the firstborn with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He wants them to be together like a sandwich, but the unleavened bread is in the middle and the meat's on the outside. That's how that sandwich is. Firstborn, firstborn, unleavened bread in the middle. He's trying to intertwine them because he wants to teach us something. But in order for us to grasp it, we're going to have to skip over the unleavened bread and get to verses 11 through 16 to to see the other layer of this, uh, the consecration of the firstborn. So read verses 11 through 13 with me. It says, "'When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of all your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb.'" or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. So here's he's, he's talking about the debt again. He said, here's the price that you have to pay. Here's the debt that is followed in like suit. You owe me all the firstborn of animals and of beasts. And, and he gives three classes. He has the clean animals, and he says, the clean animals you have to sacrifice. And he's preparing them for the sacrificial system that's coming up later in Exodus and Leviticus saying that these are holy unto me. They belong to me. You have to sacrifice. You don't get to keep them. You have to slaughter them. And then he moves on and says, and there's a donkey. It's kind of weird that he just names a donkey, but it represents the unclean animals. And the unclean animals, he says, you don't get to slaughter and and use and worship because they're unclean. So you either just kill it and lay it off to the side, break its neck, or better yet, you redeem it with a holy animal, a lamb. And that lamb becomes a substitute for that donkey. And then he gives a third category, The human beings. But if you'll notice, it's the exact same payment as for the donkey. You shall redeem it. It's talking about with a lamb, which is very interesting. God is putting donkeys and humans on the same plane before him. It's very intentional. What he's saying is human beings, though you are the apex of my creation, you are unclean. Just like the donkey's unclean, you are unclean. It's a whole theology about the sin and brokenness of humanity. We are not clean beasts. We are unclean animals. That's that's who we are before Almighty God on our own. And so we have to be redeemed with a substitute, a lamb. He's saying, this is the debt that you owe me, that you would have to pay this. Now, it's interesting the way he sets it up with the consecration of the firstborn where you have to either slaughter the animal or redeem the donkey or redeem the person. He does it in such a way that you could never forget this had to happen. This was for all future generations, not not just the first generation that is liberated from Egypt, He's saying, when you get into the promised land, I still want every single firstborn to be redeemed or consecrated. Every single one of them has to be purchased back because this is the ongoing debt you owe me. And he did it in such a way that he knew the kids would ask, now, why are we doing this? Why, why do we got to kill the fluffy little lamb to save our donkey? Why, why do we got to kill a lamb to, to save a firstborn? Like what, what's the meaning of this? Because he wanted them to remember the debt they owed him. Look, look at how he explains it in verses 14 through 16 when the kids start asking about it. Verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. He says, there's going to come a moment the kids are going to start asking and here's the answer. I purchased you. I paid the price. Remember how I told you debt works? The higher the price that's paid, the greater the debt that's owed. He's saying, I came in and if you look at chapter 13, over and over he says it with a strong arm, with a strong arm, with a strong arm. With the infinite power of Almighty God, he came and he paid a high price. Thousands upon thousands of the Egyptians were killed and the animals were killed. This huge price was paid and he says, therefore, the debt you owe me is sky high. That's why I consecrate all the firstborn. That's why they belong to me. This is the life debt you owe me. Now, remember when I told you too about a life debt, there was one of two ways. You could either repay the life debt immediately by saving the life of the person who saved yours, or you had to live the rest of your days in gratitude to that person, a debt of gratitude, living for them, serving them. That's how a life debt works. Now, because God came with a strong arm, His infinite power, there was no way the Israelites could ever pay that back. They could never do for God what God did for them and rescue God from slavery. It's never going to happen. Therefore, for the rest of their days, they were supposed to live in service to God. And that's where the unleavened bread comes in, intertwined with the consecration of the firstborn. The unleavened bread is the means by which we pay off our ongoing debt. Now, I know it doesn't make sense to you, but we're going to have to go back and read it. And I'm going to unpack how this unleavened bread fits into it. So beginning in verse 3, so we're going to go back to chapter 13, verse 3. Listen to what it says. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep the service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year. So he says, I want you to celebrate this idea of unleavened bread. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, I mentioned this to you back in chapter 12, because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was brought up back in chapter 12. But I told you it was a symbol of haste. It was this idea that you didn't have time when you were in Egypt about to be liberated whenever the Egyptians kicked you out to let your bread rise. You couldn't punch it down and let the yeast do its work. So he said, just throw in some flour, some water, some salt, and then just throw it in the oven and cook it. You're supposed to be fast. That's why they were also, if you remember, supposed to eat their Passover meal with their sandals on their feet and their belt around their waist and the staff in their hand, because they were ready. At any moment, God could come, and we're going to go with him. But if you'll notice some of the details of this particular feast, he said, when you get into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites, that's the promised land. That's the land of Israel. When you get over into the promised land, some decades later, you're going to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Now, whenever they make it to the promised land, it it, it changes in meaning because they're not about to leave again. They are now arriving where God wanted them to go. It it wasn't about moving in haste anymore. It was now a different symbol. And what the symbol was, was ridding the home and the heart of the leaven of Egypt, the sin and the wickedness of Egypt. Leaven among Jewish culture always symbolized evil and wickedness and how it would spread. In fact, you, you see it if you hear Jesus. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. And when you hear Jesus talk about leaven, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, meaning the, the wickedness and the evil of the Pharisees that would spread from person to person to person to person. If you go over to the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, watch out, because little leaven will leaven the whole lump. And he says, don't, don't have the lump, which is wickedness, but have truth and sincerity. So he's talking about leaven. Remember, Paul too was a Jew. He was viewing leaven as a symbol of wickedness that spreads. That's what leaven in Jewish culture represented wickedness, and, and I had never seen this before. I don't know how I missed this. I had never seen that the, the actual action wasn't just to remove leaven from the bread. It was to remove leaven from their lives. L- look, at, look at chapter 12 again. I want you to go back to chapter 12 and look at verse 15. I totally missed this. It says, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Don't just say remove leaven from your bread. It says sweep it out of your houses. In fact, if you were to go over back to chapter thirteen, I read it, but you might have missed it. He said in verse seven, "Leaven bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leaven bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory." In other words, in all the land, the promised land, get rid of every shred of leaven. I learned that the Jewish people would actually like ration out their leaven to that moment because they knew they were going to have to throw it all away when it came to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You weren't supposed to keep any leaven inside your house or in your territory. You had to get rid of all of it. Clean sweep. And the whole point of it was to say, don't bring with you the evil of Egypt. Don't bring with you the wickedness, the leaven that can spread among you. Now, if you know the story of the Israelites, they fell prey to that. They, they were worshiping some of the Egyptian gods. They were following some of the evil practices. And God was saying, leave that stuff. Sweep it out for seven days, don't let there be a lick of leaven and remember that you are supposed to live different than the people around you. Ultimately, the whole feast of unleavened bread is a call to holiness. And he's saying, this is the price that you pay for what I've done for you. This is the life debt. You're never gonna be able to repay my power. So the way you repay it is by being holy as I am holy. In fact, this is the very thing God tells the nation of Israel over and over and over I want to read for you in the book of Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Listen to how he ties the call to holiness to what happened in Exodus. Leviticus eleven forty-four says this. For I am the Lord. That's the name Yahweh again. For I am Yahweh, your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. He says, therefore, be holy as I am holy. Why? Because I brought you up out of Egypt. I paid the high price. This is the debt you owe me. Be holy. That word holy means be set apart, be different. Don't drink of the culture around you. Don't follow their practices. Be holy, be different. This is what you owe me. This is the debt for what I've done for you. Be holy as I am holy. Now, if you know anything about the word of God, they were colossal failures in paying this debt back to God the last thing Israel was, was holy. They, they just, the, as soon as they got rid of Egypt, they go into the promised land and they just start drinking deep of the Canaanite religion and worship of Baal and, and the Amorite religion and having their children pass through the fire. And they were, they were following all these, these false gods and all these wicked practices and evils just permeating their culture. And the whole time God is saying, sweep out the leaven. And they're just taking in more and more and it's spreading among them. God had done so much for them And they're paying back so little to him, not the least bit grateful for the debt they owed God. It's really a pretty tragic story. And it is only equal in tragic nature to our story because we too have been given such a huge sacrifice by our father. And we pay him back so little. He says to us, be holy as I am holy. Live different than the world around you. And if we're honest... How many times have we just drunk deep of the culture around us and lived like everybody else? The truth is we're, we're not holy. We have a God who created us, who breathed life into us, who provided for us, watched over us, been there for us when we needed him most. He's done so much for us, and we pay so little back to him. There was a reason why I said earlier it put humans on level with donkeys because that's who we are. That's the way we behave, stubborn, following our own way. You actually have to come to grips with this nature of who you are if you could ever come to appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel does not have meaning until you become desperate for it. And the only way to be desperate is to realize how broken you are, how unholy you are. Because the moment you realize in your own self you are unholy, then all these symbols merging together have a brand new meaning. And that's exactly what happens in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the sandwich comes together. You have the Passover, who is the Lamb of God, who now becomes the consecration for the firstborn, who is also the unleavened bread. And they merge in Jesus Christ. And you and I realize God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. This is the very thing Jesus teaches his disciples in the upper room right before he's about to be crucified. This is the very symbol I think the Lord wants to teach us today. So we're going to do something a little bit different. In a moment, we are going to take the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do it with matzah bread. That's what this is right here. It's just the normal, any Jew who's doing a Seder meal will use this kind of bread, matzah bread. It's a very specific kind of bread, and I'm going to talk about it in a moment, but I want us to imitate a little bit what it would have been like for the for the Jewish people to take this as they're getting instructions. So Here's what I want to invite you to. I want to invite everybody who's physically able to stand up, to stand up right now, if you don't mind. And I want you to go ahead and start clumping together in your family groups, wherever you are. If you have family with you, go ahead and do so. Listen, if you don't have family with you, I want you to join either somebody else's family or you can get a number of people together. I just don't want there to be anybody by themselves. So no less than three or four people no more than about 10, if you, can, if you can do that. If you have a really big family, it's all right. You can go a little bit past it. But just be in your family group. And then I have some deacons and ushers who are going to head to the tables to help me out. And so I want to invite the deacons and ushers to head to the tables. And they're going to help. And by the way, uh, the families of the deacons and ushers, those who are at the tables, you can actually go join your family at the tables because I want you to be able to take it with your family as well. Now, I want uh, at least uh, I I want one representative for each one of your little clumps to go to one of these tables. There are four tables here. There are four tables just right there around the bowl area. And you need one piece of matzo bread for each group. You're only only breaking off a little piece of bread. So one will cover up like 20 people. So you just need one piece of matzo bread. So right now have one representative from your group go to get one piece of matzo bread and don't break it yet. Just take it back and hold it. Don't start passing it out quite yet to your group. But let's go ahead and do that. Get a piece of matzo bread. Now, I'm going to be inviting everybody to take this symbol as your family. Normally, we take the Lord's Supper, and it's only for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. But this time, we're taking it like it would have been done in the book of Exodus with the family, the whole family, to get the teaching. By the way, if you're watching online, you you might not have matzo bread. You can grab a cracker or something like that. Get that ready for yourself as well. You're going to need the bread. You're going to need the cup in a little bit. So get those for yourself, because I want you to participate. If you have your family with you, if you're by yourself, that's okay too. But go ahead and get ready for it. And then everybody in here, go ahead and get your one piece of matzo bread. And when you have your matzo bread, go ahead and hold it up. So I know that we have it. Okay. So just one piece of matzo bread per group. And again, I, I prefer no one to be by themselves. Even if you only have one other person, at least, that's fine. But if you, if you need to clump up with another group around you, do that as well. I think it's important to try to experience it together with somebody else. Okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want whoever is holding the matzo bread to kind of put it just in the middle so the whole group can see it. And I want you to look at the piece of matzo bread. So a couple things I want to point out. First of all, it is completely flat. And the reason it's flat is because it has absolutely zero leaven in it. Now, Jesus would have had a piece of bread that looked just like this. It would have been completely flat and it would have been unleavened. And what he's telling his disciples is I am the unleavened bread. I am the sinless lamb of God. He wanted them to understand that he is the feast of unleavened bread. He is bringing that in, in his own body. He says, unleavened bread, that's me. He said, this is my body. He was saying something really powerful. Now, I want you to, Just look at the the little holes that are inside the bread. Our our brother Rick Weintraub, as he does a Seder mill, he taught me this one, that the, the, the bread has been done this way by Jewish people for a long time, these little holes pierced in it. So Jesus would have had a symbol of that as well, and he's holding up this pierced piece of bread and says, this is my body. They don't know what's happened, but he's about to go to the cross where he's about to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And they had a piece of bread, and he's saying, this is my body. This is about to be done for you. And in it, he is showing himself to be the substitute, the lamb that is being crucified, murdered, so that the firstborn could live. In a moment, one person is going to break it and hand it to each person. And when that break happens, that's going to be a picture of the, of the sacrifice, the death of the lamb of God. And then when I tell you in a moment, you're going to, you're going to put it in your mouth, and I'm going to want you to pierce it with your incisors, and then to crush it with your molars, and to think about what it meant that the Lamb of God was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. So I want you to do that now. Take a little piece, break it, pass it to each person there. And don't eat it quite yet. Just wait one second. I want to make sure everybody's got a piece. Again, I'm I'm inviting everyone to take it this time as a symbol with a family unit just to know the teaching that is involved in it. This is, this is not your symbol of your faith in the Lord's Supper. This is a teaching moment of what these symbols signified as Jesus was teaching them to show us Exodus 13. Now, I want you to put it in your mouth, pierce it and crush it and think about the Lamb of God. Pierced for your transgressions, crushed, for my iniquities. The unleavened bread, the Lamb of God brought together one person. But Jesus also went on, he got the cup and there was more teaching involved in the cup because he's bringing one more symbol in it. So I want us to have the cup. And so we're going to have the deacons and ushers actually bring the cups and take them out to your groups. They're just going to bring it to you and you're going to grab a cup from them. And then I want you just to hold that cup and get your heart ready for the next teaching that Jesus has for us in the upper room to bring chapters 12 and 13 together in the book of Exodus. And as soon as you get the cup, I'd encourage you just to look at it. Again, if you're watching online, go ahead and grab the cup, give it to everybody who's with you. And if you can see the color of it, if you can, if you can it's, it's intended in your mind to draw your heart into a place where you could almost imagine Jesus's body on the cross. He's, he's been whipped. His flesh has been cut open. There's a crown of thorns in his head and his blood is just dripping. Almost like you're putting your cup underneath to capture some of the blood. It's a very, re- a very real reason why Jesus chose the fruit of the vine. Because he wanted it to symbolize the blood. So when you get the cup, just look at the, the cup for a little bit and think about what this is a picture of. If you don't have the cup yet, raise your hand so we can know who still needs it. We have a number over here who need it. Number over here. Well, that's being passed out. Let me, let me explain what's going on here. So chapter 12, we heard about the, the blood of the Passover and the lamb that had to be slaughtered. And you're supposed to get a hyssop branch and you were supposed to dip it in a basin of the blood that had captured the blood of the lamb, and then you paint the doorpost and the lintel of your door because there was going to be a a destroyer angel that was coming. In fact, I I want to go back and reread it for you. It's in chapter 12, verse 23. Listen to what it says. It said, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Won't allow the destroyer to enter in. Now, here's what's interesting about this destroyer angel. This destroyer angel is the executioner of the wrath of God upon the guilty, upon the unholy. If you read the, the whole tenor of the Bible, it tells you that at some point, the wrath of God will, be, will come upon all the unrighteous and the unholy. And the destroyer angel is the one who would execute that. And he would go from home to home to home to home and execute justice and wrath upon that home. And what you realize is that the Israelite homes deserved the wrath of God just as much as the Egyptian homes did, because they weren't holy because of their own obedience. But it says that when the destroyer angel came up to the house, he would pass over it because God would not allow the destroyer angel to execute wrath. Here's what it meant. And the destroyer angel came up to it and he saw the blood and he goes, Nope, this house is holy. They do not deserve the wrath of God. And he would move on to the next house. That blood covered over them meant that everyone inside that home was holy and therefore no longer deserved the wrath of God. And when Jesus gets the cup and he says, This cup is the blood in my covenant after he's already explained himself to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying this, when my blood is upon you by faith, when you believe in my blood, you are declared holy. He says, be holy as I am holy. And you're not holy because you try really hard. You're not holy because you watch services online or come to a church building because you stop cussing, because you stop drinking, because you changed your ways. That, that's not what makes you holy. You're made holy because the blood is upon the door of your house. And when the father looks at you, he sees his son Jesus and says, nope, nope, this house is holy. This house no longer deserves my wrath. That's what this cup represents. So drink it and take in the sweetness of the symbol that Jesus wanted us to have. Holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now I want you guys to go ahead and grab a seat back up. I got one last quick thing I want to teach you before we're done. Guys, here's here's what I want you to hear from this. These symbols were meant to teach us the truth of Exodus 13, to merge together chapter 12 and the Passover lamb and the blood on the doorposts. into chapter 13, the consecration of the firstborn all the way into the feast of unleavened bread. They all come together in one man, Jesus Christ. But remember what I told you earlier. The whole point of God telling them this in chapter 13 before they leave is to remind them of the debt they owed him because they were not going to be able to be his people unless they lived in light of that debt. They owed a life debt to the Father, to Yahweh. And then you have Jesus hundreds of years later and he grabs his disciples. He says, I'm giving you a practice that you're going to do together when you gather as my people. And what he's doing, is he's giving us a reminder every single time we take these elements of the debt that we owe him. That's the point of the Lord's Supper. If the Lord's Supper doesn't make us holy, there's no power in the matzah bread or the cup. It's a reminder. It's a reminder of what he's done for you so that you know what you owe him, a life debt. In fact, I love how the Apostle Paul puts it. There's one last passage of scripture I want to read for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, listen to how succinctly he brings it all together. Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You were purchased, you were bought with a price. And remember what I said, a debt always follows in suit with the price that's paid. An infinite price, the price of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And because an infinite price was paid, an infinite debt is incurred. And for the rest of our lives, we live holy lives because we have been purchased. Now, there are two things that you need to know what that means. First thing you need to know when you take the Lord's Supper and you believe in what the elements symbolize, you need to remember who you are. The Lord's Supper reminds you who you are. Always remember who you are. And here's what I mean by that if you have believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are holy. That's who you are. Remember what I said earlier not by your righteousness. Not by the things that you've done. You did not earn it. And here's the good news it means you can't unearn it. When you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are holy. The Father says, Be holy as I am holy. And when you have the blood of Jesus Christ upon you, you are holy. That's who you are. I, I just, I worry though, that some of you have forgotten who you are. Some of you have forgotten that you have been given a robe of righteousness. You've been given a seat at the banquet table of Almighty God. You are his adopted child. You belong to him. And right now you are living in the gutters. You are drinking deep of sin. You are taking on the leaven of the world around you. You have forgotten that you are holy. And today God is saying, come back to me. Get out of the dumpster. Get out of the gutters. Come back to me. You are holy. Made holy by Christ himself. And the good news of the gospel is every single time you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. And you can come back to that position of holiness today simply by saying, God, I'm sorry. I haven't been holy. You've made me holy and I haven't been living up to who I am. I've forgotten who I am. I just wonder if there aren't some of you today who need to confess some sin saying, forgive me, Lord. Maybe maybe later on, you need to just get on your knees right there by your seat or come down to these steps and say, oh God, forgive me. I haven't been holy like I should be. I've forgotten who I am. You need to remember who you are. But there's a second thing this thing teaches us. Nothing might even be more important. You need to remember whose you are. You always need to remember whose you are. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you belong to him. You were purchased. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong to him. Now here's what you got to understand. Sometimes we think, okay, I used to be enslaved to addiction, to sin, to brokenness, to Satan. And then I've been ransomed and rescued and now I'm free. And you think that you own yourself. That's not how it works. It's a transfer of ownership. You used to be owned by addiction, by sin, by evil, by wickedness, by the enemy. But now you are owned by Jesus Christ. You've gone from a cruel master to a beautiful, kind master who will love you and care for you. But you belong to him. But that is amazing news because when you belong to Jesus, nobody else can own you. You can look back and say, that person who abused me does not own me. My failure doesn't own me. My past doesn't own me. That boss, that spouse, that child, that parent, they don't own me. That situation doesn't own me. Only Christ owns me. I belong to him and to him alone. So there's some of you, you've forgotten who owns you. And you're letting somebody else control you. Satan has fed you a lie that you will never get out of that broken state you're in right now. You're never going to get over that addiction. You're never going to solve that problem. You're never going to get away from your past. He's trying to own you because he used to be your master. But every once in a while, you just need to be snapped back into and go, no, you don't own me anymore, Satan. You can't tell me what to do. I belong to a new master right now, and that master loves me. And you can look Satan in the face and say, be gone from me. I own, I'm owned by somebody else. Never forget whose you are. You belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you about this king. He owns all power and he can do whatever he wants in your life. And there are some of you who have some situations that are really hard. And right now he's saying, would you remember, I own you. I've got you. Let me take care of that problem. We're gonna have prayer like we do every single week and we're gonna have a prayer team down front to grab hands with you and pray over you. And there are some of you who have a situation right now that is overwhelming you. The reason it's overwhelming you is because you've forgotten who owns you. The King of Kings owns you. He can handle your problem. Take it to him and say, I- I've forgotten that you own me. Here, take it back, Lord. Solve this problem. You pray to him and ask him to be there for you. Don't ever forget whose you are. There's one last thing, though, I got to say before we head out. Here's what you need to know, guys. I I worry the most about this one particular issue. I say, don't ever forget whose you are. And there are some of you who think you belong to Christ when you don't. The reason you think you belong to Christ is because you grew up in a Christian family, because you love Jesus, because you go to church or you listen to sermons, because you've tried to change your ways and you, you think that's enough. The truth is, there comes a moment you have to give your life over to Christ. You have to give him ownership. It's not enough to know all this stuff. You have to say, Jesus, I'm going with you. I give you everything. This, this past week, we celebrated 14 years of my son, Max, in, in our family. It's his gotcha day. Every, every single Year we have that moment on October 3rd to remember the day we were in the orphanage and we brought Max into our home and we, we watched the videos every single year. And this was on Monday of this past week, we were watching the videos and I was, I was just reminded of that moment when we were in the orphanage and he came with us. And I, and I shared this video about a decade ago, but there's a lot of new people here. And so I, I thought it was worth sharing again of, of the moment when he came with us. so in the, in the home video you're about to see in a second, here's what's going on. We have, at this point, spent months and months and months taking classes, filling out paperwork, doing all this work to adopt this child named Max that lived on the other side of the world. We paid all the fees. We'd done everything we needed to do. We had literally traveled across the world, my wife Virginia and I, with our two daughters. We had driven over to the orphanage and were there with him to adopt him. But, but did you know, and this happened before, that in that moment, Max could have said, I'm not going with them. I don't want them to be my parents. And we could have paid all the price. We could have traveled all over the world to get him. And he would not have been mine until he packed up his little suitcase and came with me. In the video you're going to see, there's this cute little blue suitcase. And all his three-year-old belongings were in that little suitcase. And you're about to witness the moment my son became mine. Why don't you watch this? Oh. oh! You're ready to rock and roll, right? <laughs> You want to go home? <laughs> no, well, I'm, uh, your Emily, Emily, his parents come to the doctor. He's very sad person. Oh, well, he always ask me, when my parents will come. We, say, we want to go home. <laughs> we hated it. It took so long. <laughs> He's ready. What can I do? In that one little moment, yeah, praise the Lord. We didn't even ask him to get his suitcase. He was ready. He grabbed his own suitcase and said, Mom and Dad, I'm going with you. And it was in that moment that he became my son. In that moment, when he walked out with us, it was official. We'd gotten him. He was ours. He now had my last name. Everything I had was his and will always be so because he's my son. But it took that moment when he grabbed that little blue suitcase and said, Mom, Dad, I'm going with you. It is no different with Christ. You can know that he's paid all the price. You can know that he has pursued you, gone all over the world for you, came after you. But until you grab that little suitcase and say, Daddy, I'm going with you. I want to belong to you. I want to have your name. I give myself to you. I want the old me to be gone. I I I want you to own me. Until that moment happens, you are not his. Every single one of us has to have that time. We say, I want the old me to die. I wanna be a brand new me. And I want you to be my master, my Lord. And the scriptures tell us exactly how to do it. We don't have to grab a little blue, back, little blue suitcase. We, we grab a little baptistry up here and we go into the water and we say, I'm dead. The old me and and owning myself, the enemy owned me, all my past is gone. A brand new me comes out and I belong to Jesus. That's the moment we say, Jesus, I'm going with you. I belong to you. And I just wonder if there aren't some of you who are here. And God's been all over you. It's been weeks. He's been all over you. And you've been just taking that, telling that voice, no, no, it's it's okay. It's okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. I go to church. I'm okay. I'm a good person. I'm okay. And right now he's saying to you, I I love you. I'm pursuing you, but you got to come with me. You're not going to experience the blessing of being mine until you come with me. And I think there's some of you who need to find out the power of belonging to Jesus. If that's you, we're going to have pastors who are down front ready to counsel with you. We got t-shirts. We'll get you a Jesus in my place t-shirt. The whole teaching today has been Jesus in my place. And you can come up to this baptistry before you leave today and say, Jesus, I want to publicly belong to you. I want everybody to know I'm going with you. I want your name. Can happen today, but you gotta make that decision. So I wanna invite everybody to stand up right now, if you will, and I'm gonna ask the pastors and prayer team to, to come down. And I wanna remind you, if today you're going, man, I, I, need, I need to tell the Lord I'm sorry, I have not been holy as he's called me to be holy, I need to confess, you do that. If you're saying, I've forgotten who I belong to, I belong to the King of Kings, I need to bring my prayer requests down before God, you do so, we have people ready to pray with you. Or if today you're saying, today's the day I'm ready to grab my suitcase. I'm ready to go with him. I'm ready to declare that I belong to him because I want to experience life with Jesus. And you let us know. We'll be ready to meet with you. So now's the time. You respond as you need to.